Hello, folks, and welcome back. We are once again taking a look at the Mad Max novelization. We are on chapter nine. Uh, if where we last left off was the scene in the movie where Johnny the boy is picked up by Max. It's supposed to be Max and Goose, and he's talking about remember the night rider. Although in the with the American dub, it's more like Remember the Night Rider! Whacked right out of his skull, man! Woohoo! My favorite, my favorite. Okay. Um, so now we're on chapter nine. Deep in the bowels of the halls of justice, Johnny the boy was being held in a small, dirty cell. It had only taken a matter of hours at the hospital before he came out of the psychotropic uh, trance which a combination of hallucinogens, alcohol, and amphetamines had sent him into. Bobby and Mary were in much worse shape. Remember, those are the kids that were 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 in the town where the where the night where the uh, alkalite gang had rode rode into in the beginning. Max had gleaned enough information from them to give him a basis on which to interrogate Johnny. Shuttling between rooms, using the bits and pieces of the story that tumbled or were dragged out, he managed to get a fair idea of what had happened at Jerusalem. That's the name of the place, Jerusalem. And in the aftermath, finally, he drove out there and found Judy. The gang had long since gone. She was hesitant and, like most of her generation, deeply suspicious of the bronze. But under sustained questioning from Max, she confirmed enough of the story to convince him that, he had, that he'd have enough to send Johnny the boy at least away for a long, long time. He couldn't find the owner of the garage or the waitress, but he carried Judy and her story back to the hospital with him and laid it on Johnny. Max had found it necessary to get rough with him, grabbing him by the ears and methodically crashing his head against the wall behind the bed. He succeeded in establishing Johnny's part in the major events on that day. Johnny's head was still pounding when Max charged him with two counts of rape, two, uh, two of causing grievous bodily harm, and one of attempted murder, and three counts of malicious damage. Max had demanded and received from the hospital authorities his immediate discharge and had placed him under arrest. That had been 36 hours ago, and while Johnny had been quietly stewing in his cell, Max had provided the, pub the public prosecutor with all of the details necessary to deliver a heavyweight attack, which would ensure that the three justices would refuse to grant him bail. So there's three justices that convict uh, people in... Australia, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that's in the fictional dystopian Australia that we're reading about or in like actual Australia, or at least that's what Max thought when he arrived at the halls of justice to give his evidence in the bail hearing. He was surprised to find that McCa he was surprised to find McAfee, Fief McAfee, sitting in the reception area waiting for him. What brings you down here, chief? Oh, I just thought I'd come down and have a look at the wrecker you nailed. He's a real sweetheart, isn't he? Max, I've just been talking to the public prosecutor, and there's something I gotta tell you. What is it, Chief? Is there something wrong with the case? Yeah, well, there is. It seems that the prosecution it seems that the prosecutor has contacted all the people you said were witnesses to what happened, and well, he hasn't found anyone that's willing to testify. What? Max screamed. 
Who won't testify? See, in the movie, it's Jim Goose who's freaking out. And I don't even think Max is there. Uh, what? Max screamed. Who won't testify? Now listen, Max, the chief said with the tone of command creeping into his voice. I don't doubt for a moment the accuracy of your version, but but it, well, the prosecutor said that neither of the two victims or the girl in Jerusalem are willing to get up in the box and repeat their allegations. Nor is anyone from the town or the kid who got thrown through the window. You've got to be kidding me. They're not going to, they're going to let him, they're not, you got to be kidding. They're not going to let him go. Look, the prosecutor and his staff have spoken to them all and threatened them, conjoled them, argued with them, and damn well screamed at them. But none of them have got the guts to get up there and verify your story. Now we can go ahead, let you into the box, and see and see you make a damn fool of yourself with total unsupported allegations. Or we could drop the charges. You're not just going to let him walk away. What I mean, Max, the chief said, emphasizing his words by slamming his fist into the palm of his hand. What I mean, Max, is that we haven't got a case. There's no contest. Either we drop the charges or the justices say there's no case to answer. Wait, sorry. Oops. Well, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm messing this up. What I mean, Max, the chief said, emphasizing his words by slamming his fist into the palm of his hand, is that we haven't got a case. There's no contest. Either we drop the charges or the justices say there is no case to answer. There's a question mark. That doesn't make any sense. We, we just can't let him walk away as if nothing ever happened. For Christ's sake, Chief, you can't think like that. For Christ's sake, Chief, you can't think like that. What's with all the weird question marks? That's exactly what I do think, Max. We're going to let him walk out the door because we've got no alternative. That's what I've come down to tell you. Chief, let me go and see these people. I'll be, I'll, I'll damn, I'll damned well convince them that they've got to give the evidence. That's not as simple as that, Max. Our little thug has already contacted the People's Observer and demanded that we either proceed with the case or we release them. We have no choice and we ain't got it, no case. It's just as simple as that. Jesus Christ, why bother? See, now that should have had a question mark that has an exclamation point. Jesus Christ, Chief, why bother? Why do I bother, Chief? Because you're a damn good cop, Max. Now, come on. You gotta come down. And as the form forms say, in the presence of the accused and an impartial witness duly signed certain documents releasing the said accused from all charges, which, in the opinion of the public, public prosecutor or a person delegated by him, cannot be sustained in court, this is very bureaucratic for a Mad Ma for a Mad Max novelization. What a raft of crap. Some guy's going to walk out of here and he's just going to go doing it to all. What a raft of crap. Some guy's going to walk out of here and he's going to just go. He's just going to do it all again. And they've even got a form that allows him to do it. Holy hell. The chief rose to his feet, feeling again a sense of inadequacy and frustration which had swept over him when he'd received the call from the prosecutor's office. How the devil can you be expected? Uh, um, how the devil can you be expected to keep good men in the force when the whole of the system is loaded against them? He thought walking together, the two of them took the elevator into the depths of the building to the high security area containing the holding cells in the foyer. 
McAfee recognized the slick suited figure of a member of the people's observers office, a man whose job technically was to ensure the members of the public were not deprived of their rights of their rights, but who really, at least in the opinion of all the police officers was appointed to frustrate any attempts at prosecution. And we see that guy in, remember we see those pencil pushers, those bureaucratic stooges in that scene with Charlie and Jim, the goose and Thief McAfee. I think Max is there, but he's holding back uh, goose goose's goose's role has been uh, diminished significantly in, in the novelization. This is the uh, this is the uh, people's observer. Chief McAfee, is it? He said with a gently, gently rounding his vowels. But in the in the movie, his voice is super annoying. So that's how I'm going to read it. Chief McAfee, is it? He said with gently rounded vowels of a man who had been bred to get his own way. Yeah, that's right. The chief replied. And this is the officer involved. Good. I take it that the police have decided to drop these ill-advised charges. Max felt his anger rise, but the chief got in first. I have decided that we won't be prosecuting, he said pointedly. Well, then, I well, then, chief, it only remains for you to request the release of the prisoner and we'll sign the necessary documents. The chief walked across to the office behind the large desk, gave him Johnny's name and gathered up a sheaf of forms. The officer lifted the phone uh, dialed a number and gave some brief instructions to one of the war warders warders. I don't boy. Some of these Australian words are, are so different. So weird. Several minutes passed before Johnny, the boy appeared behind the floor to ceiling grill grill at one end of the foyer. Deliberately, the officer behind the desk walked to the grill, examined the identification papers handed through the bars to him by a warder and then inserted a security card into a slot on the wall. The door slid open and John and Johnny, the boy was standing next to them. You got some papers to sign bronze. Johnny sneered. Cause I'm sure ready to watch you. <laughs> a laugh broke out of his lips and Max wish he had battered the little bastard's head to a pulp. When he had him alone in the hospital room, the chief led them to <laughs> the chief led them over to the office, the officer's desk and indicated where Max should sign. Um, does it say, does it say then that the charges were all trumped up? Does it offer me an apology for the time I've spent in that stinking hole down there? Johnny demanded. The chief kept a hold on his temper. Listen, son, I wouldn't push your luck. The documents say that we all agree that the charges are dropped. Do you understand that? Before waiting for an answer, he continued, I think in view of the circumstances, you should be damn pleased with that. You ought to be doing another 20 years in the hole, and a lot worse than that. <laughs> That's the trouble with cops, Johnny goaded, ignoring the, ve the vehemence in the chief's voice. They're so goddamn stupid. <laughs> the chief swung around on him and grabbed him by the throat. Shut up, boy, or I'll knock your balls into your mouth. The lawyer put his hand on the chief's arm. I think that's quite enough, if you don't mind. I'll have to ask you to remember that he is an innocent man, and I demand that you treat him as such. The chief delivered a withering state stare, a withering stare into the lawyer's direction and let go of his grip on Johnny's face. Come on, Max, sign the damn things and let's get out of here. I think I want to puke. 
do what the chief says, Max, Johnny taunted. I got a lot of important business to attend to tonight. There's some people I'd like to visit. A nice young couple in the hospital, for instance. Max swung on him. You go near there and I'll break your arse. You walk through that door, Johnny, and I swear you won't come out. Did you hear that, Mr. People's Observer? The police are threatening me. Come on, Max, the chief ordered. We've done what we had to do. They got into the elevator alone, both of them lost in their own furious thoughts. Max was fantasizing about finding Johnny alone on his bike. He was feeling the gentle tremor through the wheel of his pursuit special as he nudged the back wheel of the bike, as he nudged the back wheel of the bike and watched it hurtle out of control and into oblivion. They emerged in the central reception area of the high-ceilinged, marble-floored building and without a word passing between them, passed through the revolving doors and onto the street. Almost directly outside, parked at an angle, were four superbikes leaned against them, uh, leaning against them, though neither Max nor the chief knew their names, were Bubba Zanetti, Mudguts, and the Toe Cutter. The fourth bike was Johnny's. Max and the chief walked towards their cars, and as Max went to climb into his, the chief took him by the arm. Wasn't Max. You've been a cop long enough to know that this sort of thing happens. We lost one today, but we'll win one next week. Bullshit, chief. That's just the crap. That's just crap, and you know it. We lost four or five or six for every one we win. That kid ought to be locked away for good. Instead, he's off free. An edge of fury crept into Max's voice. Look at his gangland mates. We're so damn... Look, his gangland mates were so damn sure of themselves, they even came to meet him. The chief and Max looked over back. The other three bikies were slapping Johnny on the back and congratulating him on his release. The four of them mounted their bikes and backpedaled them onto the street and drove slowly past Max and the chief. As the toe cutter came alongside, he slowed his machine almost to a standstill and looked straight at Max, saying, I know what you are, Bronze, and I've seen your face, and I won't forget it. The next time I, the next time we meet, just think of the night rider and you'll understand with the four of them opened with that. The four of them opened their throttles and threw their machines into powerful screaming U-turns and disappeared down the road. So they're the night. Uh, so they're the night riders friends, chief. Did you notice the tattoos on their cheeks on the three that were waiting? The night rider had one too. Max. I want to warn you to be careful. This has gone past the point of idle threats. Listen, chief, I could care. I couldn't care if I never put this uniform on again, as long as I live. But if I do, and I've got business like this, then I'm going to finish it out there on the road. The halls of justice aren't worth a pile of crap. The chief felt tired, worn out suddenly after years of worry and countless attempts at maintaining morale within his force. I don't know anymore, Max. I don't know if anyone does. All I can say that as long as the paperwork looks okay, as long as you don't get caught, you can do what damn well you like out there. See, in the movie, though, he says to his guys, he says, he says, as long as the paperwork's clean, go do what you want. He says, he calls the paperwork clean. The chief put his hand on Max's shoulder for a second, shook his head more in sorrow. Then, sorry, the chief put his hand on Max's shoulder and for a second shook his head more in sorrow 
than anger and got in his car. Max watched him drive off quietly down the road. As he walked to his own vehicle, Max thought about the night rider, dead and buried, laid to rest with full ceremonial honors immediately after the two girls had been R-A-P-E-D'd on top of a hill just outside of Jerusalem. He knew that the street gossip was right for once. There was a contract out on him and Johnny the boy, the drug-crazed kid who had refused to leave the scene of the crime, would have a vested interest in seeing that it was carried out. Chapter 10. Jesse was blissfully unaware of the black mood that was slipping over Max. She and Jim Goose's girl, uh, Calamine, were having the time of their lives buying party food, indulging themselves at a local, local supermarket in extravagant things that they had been resisting for months. Their spirits lifted as they wheeled trolleys along aisle after aisle, loading them with food and bottles and passed through the automatic checkout counter counter while Calamine minded their goods. Jesse got the car, pulling it up at the curb curb is spelled K E R B interesting and shuffling across the front seat to unlock the passenger door. She took a large cardboard cake box from Calamine. We'd better carry that up front. Wouldn't want anything to happen to it, Jesse scrambled out and helped Calamine load the groceries onto the tray at the back. Now that, now have we got everything, Calamine asked. Everything I could think of. What about the candles? Did you get the candles? Jesse began to laugh. Of course I got the candles. What's the good of a birthday party without candles? There was an unmistakable ripple of excitement through her voice for a moment as their eyes met reflecting each other's sparkling good humor. They quickly walked round to their respective doors and clambered inside. It's interesting to me. This is like a, this is a deleted scene. This is not in the movie at all. Um, I can't wait. Calamine Calamine isn't even in the movie unless that's the licorice, the licorice slide girl that Jim goose uh, beds before he gets uh, burned alive. I can't wait, Calamine said as Jesse pushed the automatic shift into drive. I just love parties, especially surprise parties. Can you imagine the look on Goose's face? Oh, yeah, it'll knock him out. This is like being 16 again, you know, planning and preparing, wondering what it'll all be like. I, I haven't had so much fun in a long time. Jesse maneuvered the van through the laneways of the giant parking lot and out through the control gates. She waited for a convoy of road rigs to pass, then roared out onto the freeway. Calamine settled back into the seat, propping her feet up against the dash and idly leafed through a woman's magazine. She pulled a candy bar out of her pocket and began to strip the back and began to strip back the silver silver foil concentrating on an article as Jesse let the needle on the speedo um let the needle on the speedo creep creep to up towards 80 which i guess would be 40 miles an hour cuz it's kilometers right uh Jesse let the needle on the speedo creep up towards 80 Calamine began to read out loud get a load of this crap will ya she said the ideal wife should be an economist in the kitchen an aristocrat in the dining room and a whore in the bedroom the trouble is, is that what most men get is an aristocrat in the kitchen, a whore in the dining room, and an economist in bed. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Jesse let out a low moan. Oh, Jesus. Where do they have that? Where do they get that sort of crap from? What sort of rock have those people been living under? It really pisses me off when you read about a woman's role. Do the men's magazines ever run a whole series of articles about how a man should act, how he should feel, and 
why he's the cause of things going wrong. Calamine prompted by Jesse's sudden heatedness, let the magazine drop to her lap. You read so much, you know, and that after a while, you don't know how to act, what to expect and whether you're doing the right thing or not. It always seems like the woman has to fit in with the man's life, that whatever he does is okay. And you've got to mold yourself to suit that. And that if it doesn't work, then it's the woman's fault because she hasn't done it. Then she's called selfish or she lacks understanding or any of those other ridiculous categories. They always include in these read your own personality quizzes. So what's interesting is this is like a filler chapter and it's like full of like characterization that might work in the movie, but it's just weird to me. It's like so weird to have it in this book. And again, yeah, it just feels like they're padding the, the read time and why not like include a scene why include this scene? I guess maybe to characterize Jesse and give her more like, you know, uh, definition because they're going to kill her. She's going to die eventually, obviously, as we all know. Jesse had never heard Calamine talk so much on what could be considered a serious topic. Gently, she asked, how are you and Jim getting on? For a moment, she thought Calamine, who was gazing out the window at a scorched countryside, wasn't going to answer. The seconds slipped away. Oh, OK, she replied at last. Fine, really, I suppose. But sometimes I just can't get a handle on that jealousy thing. Not his, but mine. You know what he tells me? Baby, he says. Those roadies don't mean a thing to me. They're just vacant spots to park in. Jesse looked at her, glimpsing for a second, uh, for a second, a struggle which had obviously been boiling in Calamine for months. She was about to offer some platitude when Calamine continued. I wouldn't mind if I didn't love him, Jess. You know, it'd be great hanging out with him and still have my freedom, but I do love him and I just can't stand it sometimes when I think of him with someone else. So I guess Jim and Calamine have an open relationship, or at least she knows that he he's bedding, as he calls them, roadies on the road. Ro roadies, they take on a different uh, uh, terminology in Australia in 1979. Hey, it's not that bad, is it? Oh, it is sometimes. You know, I feel like I'm just another toy of his. I mean... I wonder if I really count for something or if he's just going to run off with the next pair of fancy boobs that come his way. For all I know, he's telling all the others exactly what he's telling me. Well, Callie, you can't go through life worrying about that. You've either got to decide that you're not going to stand for it and tell him that it's over, or you're just going to learn to live with it because sure as hell, and it doesn't matter what he might say, that's his nature. And all the wishing and all the talking and promises in the world won't change it. You sound like one of those stupid damn articles that I've got to change to suit the goose. No, you don't at all. That's just the point. You don't have to change. Just leave it if you don't like it. Maybe. I wish it was that easy, Jess. Jessie turned towards her friend, took hold of her hand and squeezed it. Come on, you're letting it eat away at you. After all, who's he spending all his... Who's he... Sorry, blah, blah. Who's he spending his birthday with? Jessie gave him a smile of encouragement and turning her eyes back to the road, let her gaze roam carelessly across the rear vision mirror. Her heart almost stopped. Calamine was rattling on. I guess you're right in a way. Sometimes I think I'm stupid and I should just be thankful and leave it at that. But you know what it's like. Jessie silently le leant across the seat and unfastened the glove box. Calamine had obviously warned warmed to her subject there are moments where you think that it shouldn't be like this 
if you're with someone, then that should be enough. You shouldn't have to go looking for parking spaces. Still, without saying a word, Jesse unclipped a small pistol attached to a stand inside the recess and deftly flicking it off and deftly flicking off the safety catch, laid it on the seat beside her. Calamine stopped in mid-sentence. What the hell are you doing, Jess? There are bikes behind, Callie. Don't turn around. There's about seven of them, and they're coming out. They're coming on very fast. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Okay. Okay, this is getting interesting. They're giving us a little tension here, a little thrill in in uh, in the narrative. This I kind of wish this scene was in the movie now. Uh, Calamine fought her urge to turn and look at the danger pursuing them. Where are they? How far behind? About 30 yards. They're chopped hogs with a ton of chrome, and they've got pillion passengers. And they've all got pillion passengers. Is it them? Is it that guy? Jesse didn't answer. Jess, is it the night... Jess, it's the Knight Rider's friends, isn't it? I don't know, Callie. I really don't know. It's them. Oh, I know it is. Oh, God. Jesse's voice was low but firm. Don't panic. Just keep calm and remember, we've got the gun and we're in a car. Jesse looked up into the rearview mirror again. Now, here they come. Just hang on. The bikes, six in fact, split into two lines, obviously preparing to take the van from either side. They began to accelerate, and as the first of them reached the driver's side rear fender, the pillion passenger rose carefully and positioned his feet onto the saddle so that his back was half-turned to the women. It was, by any standard, a daredevil trick. Not only was the bike traveling at more than 80 miles an hour. Oh, interesting. So they do. That's interesting that they're using 80 miles an hour with all the Australian terms. Be 120 kilometers an hour. But it was accelerating all the time. The Pillion passenger had one hand on his driver's shoulder. And Jesse tried to keep both him and the road in view as she searched for the other hand to see if he was armed. She calculated that he would be alongside her window in several seconds. She picked up the pistol, wound down her window, and kept her right hand on the wheel, laid the end of the barrel onto the window's ledge. Calamine was slumped in her seat, wringing her hands, strangely aware of the perspiration which was pouring down her back. With a rebel yell, the bike was upon them, swooping past Jesse's window, the exhaust roaring out in a high-pitched scream. Heaven knows what stopped Jesse from firing, but the man standing on the seat was fortunate that something did. Otherwise, he would have had a very neat and very painful hole in his naked white arse. Arse. Calamine didn't know whether to howl with laughter or, or cry with relief. Um, they were being mooned. So the so it's a false alarm. They're just some biker hooligans, maybe. Or maybe it is the bikers, but they're doing it as a distraction. No sooner was the first bike past them with its pillion passenger desperately trying to recover his seat and not lose his trousers in the bargain that the next was upon them. At more than 80 miles an hour, the second passenger was on his feet. As the bike drew level with the van window and the driver reduced his acceleration slightly, the passenger steadied himself and bent over slightly. He dropped his trousers to half mass at his knees and a great white arse star stared Calamine in the face. Calamine and Jesse began to laugh, tears springing to the corners of their eyes and pains stitching across their stomachs. Two more bikes were on them, and with a fair degree of coordination, the two passengers dropped their trousers again. 
Calamine was ready this time. She had Jim's birthday cake out of the box, and as the next white arse appeared at her window, barely two feet away, she let him have the cream-filled, fluffy iced cake smack on one cheek and damn near near and damned nearly killed him. The impact of a cake, even at that speed, sp- sent him. I love that. The impact of even a cake at that speed sent him staggering to regain his balance. His swaying and rocking made the rider fight for control of the bike as it veered off uh, at an angle from the van with less than half a lane left before the bike would have run off the road. The rider managed to bring it back under control while his passenger settled down in his seat, trying to do up his fly. He brought back alongside the van. He was joined by the other bikes, the Mooners now back in their seats, and most of them laughing uproariously at the girl's response to their antics. Together, they raised their hands in acknowledgement, blasted their horns, and accelerated off into the distance. Well, Jesse said, it takes all kinds to fill the freeways, Calamine chimed in cue. Both of them broke out into rolling pearls of laughter. That's interesting that they would, you know, be laughing at that and that you know, that they would, you know, I, I mean, I, I still think it would be cause for alarm considering the fact that they do know, they do know what the deal is. There are, there are bikers out there looking to even the score with Max over what happened to the Knight Rider. Uh, it's an interesting chapter. I Listen, uh, as I've said at the beginning, like any additional footage is something that I would want to see in the movie, like any like additional scenes. Um, I, I, you know, if you had to cut stuff for running time, I think this would be one of the first things to cut because it's, while it's good for character building and shows that like Jesse is like plucky and when left to her own devices is capable of like defending herself. Like it's not inherently necessary to the story or to Jesse's, uh, needs for the story. You know what I'm saying? Um, so that's it. Two more chapters in the books. We will be back next time with chapter 11. Um, Thank you so much for uh, joining us. And remember, eventually when we're done with Mad Max, we will be reading The Road Warrior and then we will be moving on to Beyond Thunderdome. So we're doing the entire trilogy. Uh, And uh, I think this is a good time to tell you about Riot Stickers, our uh, sponsor of this channel, Riot Stickers. Um, They are great. They print all of their stickers on vinyl. Uh, with a UV coating for protection. And we have a special promotion with Riot Stickers where you can get a 1,000 stickers, three inches by three inches, for $79. You will not find a better deal than that. I was just at the Genre Blast Film Festival, and we were, you know, Riot Stickers sponsored the festival, and people were singing the Riot Stickers theme song and clapping uh, every time that it played. I thought it was uh, amazing, really effective piece of marketing. Uh, so let the, let the video speak for itself. And when you need stickers, when it's time for you to print something, whether it's a banner, uh, a T-shirt, look, these T-shirts were printed by Riot Stickers. Uh, just about everything I'm... I'm I'm, I'm touting today is, is made by ride stickers in some way, shape or form. And not this microphone and not this, actually this hat. I believe this hat also came from, no, no, no. This hat did not come from ride stickers. Um, in any which case, uh, we will see you next time. Here's the ride stickers theme. 